Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features a discussion about medical records, data breaches, and privacy. Then, Wessel's economic update on, you guessed it, taxes. And finally, another installment of Metro Lens. If you have any questions for these or other guests on the show, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. My guest today is Neam Yuragi, a fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation here at Brookings. He is an expert on the economics of healthcare information technology with a focus on health information exchange systems. Welcome to the show, Neam. Good morning, Fred. Thanks for having me. So we've heard about a lot of uh, medical data breach incidents lately, like the one that has just hit or recently hit MedStar Health that operates 10 hospitals here in the uh, region. Can you uh, quickly summarize what happened? So this is a part of this new type of uh, IT incidents or hack, hacking attacks uh, on American hospitals. And it's quite interesting and different from the uh, other types of hacking attacks in the case that they are not stealing data. What they do is they just disable hospitals' IT networks and prevent them from accessing their data. It's just like somebody changing the lock on your front door and do not let you get into your door unless you pay them the ransom. They're not touching anything inside your home. They're not stealing any of your properties. They are just changing the lock. So I read that uh, there was an incident in California where um, the hospital or hospital system had to pay ransom to these hackers in Bitcoin. Is that true? True. What is the practical impact on a hospital system of this kind of uh, hacking attack? What happens? Well, after the government's push to digitizing healthcare, now almost all the hospitals in the United States have gone completely digital. That means that anything that previously was recorded on a paper is now in an electronic format. And that means hospitals rely so heavily on their IT networks that without them, they cannot operate. They will become literally crippled. So they need to have access to their networks. The point is, unlike other types of businesses that can shut down for a couple of days to solve this problem, hospitals cannot do that because they're dealing with patient safety and patient lives. So in this recent incident in uh, MedStar hospitals, they had to turn patients away because they couldn't do anything. So hospitals are really vulnerable to these uh, type of attacks, specifically because they're dealing with patient lives and they cannot stop operating. They should be on and running 24-7. Well, is that one reason why these hackers are targeting hospitals specifically? Absolutely, because hospitals are not able to tolerate the consequences of such attacks. I want to quote something I, I, uh, I read that you wrote recently. When it comes to data protection, big technology companies are the warships and hospitals are small rubber dinghies in a sea of hacker sharks. That's very provocative. Yeah. So that would explain perhaps that there probably are more breaches of uh, IT security in the healthcare sector than in other types of industries, even though if they hacked into a bank, there's lots of money there. Yeah, but I'm not sure if they can actually use the information that they are stealing from the banks because the banking industry is now mature and developed to the extent that, you know, even if you hack into their systems, they have procedures to mitigate the consequences and prevent you from doing what you want. So I'll give you an example. 
So if somebody steals my credit card number, what will happen is that I, first of all, would immediately notice because there is uh, online and on-time access to my uh, transactions. Then uh, my credit card issuers would freeze my card, reverse the charges, and issue me a new credit number with a new credit card. However, if my health data gets breached, which includes my name, my date of birth, my home address, and my social security number, none of these can be frozen and none of these can be reassigned to me. So the consequences of such breaches will be much larger. Let's go back to something you said a few minutes ago. Uh, you were talking about the government push to digitize healthcare. Is that related to something that makes the healthcare sector more vulnerable to breaches, something about their ID departments versus, say, the IT departments of, of a bank or even a technology company? So the difference between IT revolution in the healthcare sector and literally any other sector is that other businesses embraced IT naturally and gradually, and that enabled them to prepare in other aspects that are necessary to efficiently use IT. For example, in the banking industry, they had enough time to also increase their security capabilities. In the healthcare, it happened overnight. So according to the statistics by the Office of National Coordinator on Health IT, the percentage of the U.S. hospitals that had some type of electronic health record system just skyrocketed over the last five years, 9.4% in 2008 to 96.9% in 2014. Uh, Hospitals, although they adopted information technology and went digital, they did not have time to prepare for the other things that are necessary for that. So they adopted IT too fast, and also uh, they adopted IT too late, which means that while banks are now five or six years ahead of healthcare industry in terms of IT and other security technologies, healthcare industry is still at the beginning of the road. So the fact that they are experiencing more glitches is not unexpected. I want to take a quick break here to hear Wessel's economic update. It's April 15th, so he's talking about taxes. Uh, and then when we come back, I want to talk more about medical data and some solutions that you've been thinking about. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. It's that time of the year again, tax time. So here's some timely tax trivia. Old-timers like me remember newspaper stories about post offices staying open late so people could get their tax returns postmarked just before midnight. Not so much anymore. Last year, 88% of the 150 million tax returns were filed electronically, either by a tax preparer or by people with a home computer. Under the Paperwork Reduction Act, the IRS is required to tell us how long they think it takes us to fill out our tax forms. Most people, by which I mean the 70% of us who don't have any business income on their returns, spend about eight hours, the IRS says. And they say we spend on average $110, either paying someone to do our taxes or buying software. More than half the taxpayers do pay someone else to do their taxes. About a third use that tax prep software. Another interesting fact. Most Americans pay more to Washington in those payroll taxes, Social Security and Medicare, that come out of our paychecks than they do in federal income taxes. Take a family of four that earns about $75,000 a year. Half the families earn more than that, half earn less. They pay about $4,500 or 6% of their income in income taxes, but more than that in Social Security and Medicare payroll taxes. And you know what else? 
The share of income that the typical American pays in federal taxes, when you add together the income taxes and the payroll taxes, has actually not been going up over the past couple of decades. About half of all Americans tell the Gallup poll that they think the amount of money they pay in federal income taxes is too high. But that percentage is actually a lot lower than it used to be. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, nearly 70% of the people thought they paid too much. Most of the others think they pay about the right amount. Not surprisingly, very few people, only about 3%, think they're taxed too lightly. Unfortunately, Gallup doesn't have their names and numbers because we could ask them to pay more. But a lot of people don't pay any taxes at all. The Tax Policy Center estimates that about 45% of American households pay zero federal income taxes, though most of them pay payroll taxes on their wages. Roughly 17% of people pay neither payroll taxes nor federal income taxes. And then there are refunds. That's the only good part about filling your taxes. Last year, 80% of Americans got a refund. They voluntarily paid too much in taxes, so the government owed them money when they filed. The average was about $2,700. It turns out that a lot of people would rather have a little more taken out of their paychecks each week so they can get a good-sized refund when they file. It forces them to save or gives them a lump sum to use to pay off a big debt or take a vacation or something. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. And now back with Neam Yuragi. So, Neam, focusing, again, just on the hospitals and their data, so as opposed to personal medical data, what do you think will happen in the near future? Um, you think these breach incidents will continue to happen? How can they be stopped? Is there anything government can do to help? Yeah, these breaches will definitely continue uh, because these are a smart and easy way for hackers to make a few bucks. And I don't see any reason from the hacker's perspective to stop what has proven to them to be a successful way of gaining some money. Uh, so these hacking incidents, unfortunately, will continue because there is no immediate solution to decrease them at the moment. However, they will also be a wake-up call for hospitals to take information security much more seriously than before and implement long-term solutions to prevent those type of hacking attacks. In terms of what government can do, I think uh, the very first one is that the Office for Civil Rights, which is an office within the Department of Health and Human Services that oversights how healthcare industry manages patient privacy and complies with uh, the HIPAA regulation, uh, should be much more transparent about the details of these breaches. Because as soon as a privacy breach happens, Office of Civil Rights conducts a very thorough audit. But the point is, it's not going to share the details of those audits. It's, it's not going to tell us how exactly that breach happened and what are the lessons learned from that breach. Another very famous and recent example that we experienced was the Anthem hacking attack about a year ago. That was the largest hacking incident in the healthcare sector. Although the OCR's audit is still not finished, even if it finishes, they're not going to tell you how exactly that breach happened. What happens as a result of this lack of transparency is if there are other health insurers out there that have the same security weaknesses as Anthem, they will not know it and they can not stop it. So hackers will be able to comfortably attack other targets using the exact same methods. So OCR is practically helping hackers attack as many different victims as they want. 
And do you have any sense or is there any knowledge about who these hackers are? Well, I had uh, recently finished a research project in which I talked with a wide variety of uh, different types of healthcare organizations who have been a victim of these incidents over the last two years. And uh, there are different types of hackers. Uh, some of them, or, or let's say most of them, are the ones that are not specifically after the medical data, but are hacking into the hospitals out of curiosity. There is a teenager who wants to see if he can hack into the Presbyterian hospital system. And some, some other hackers, which are mainly from outside of the United States, are hacking into these hospitals to use their IT infrastructure for other things. So I was talking with a hospital whom their servers was, was attacked and hackers had access to their servers for over two years to use their servers to have access to some porn website in Eastern Europe. So unless the hackers are after a specific person's medical records, which rarely happens, uh, unless that specific patient is a celebrity or a public figure, it's very unlikely that hackers are targeting a specific kind of type of medical records and doing it for a specific reason. So let's take this opportunity to switch gears a little bit now. We've talked a lot about um, hackers going after hospital systems, their IT systems, trying to shut down their operation. Now let's talk about from the patient side. Nearly everybody in this country has, has been... Uh, involved in the medical system. We all have medical records full of very private information. I, I've seen reports that medical data could be sold for $450 per record on the black market. Is that true? And and why would hackers want to do that? Why would that be a way for them to make money? So again, as I said, hackers are not after our medical data. They could not care less about my blood type or my last hospitalization transcripts. Uh, what they are after are about those other pieces of information that are available in the medical data that are uh, personal identifiers such as date of birth and social security numbers because they can use those pieces of information to create a fake identity and do things uh, which lets them make money. So, for example, they can create uh, fake insurance claims and get reimbursed from the insurance companies. They can go and buy uh, prescription drugs or medical devices under your insurance and then sell it in the black market with a higher premium. So nobody is interested in my medical records. Everybody wants to have that, that small part of it that includes personal information to use that to basically seal my identity. That's that's very important to note. And that the reports that are saying that these records are being sold about $500 a piece are true. However, from a hacker's perspective, the bottleneck is scalability and how to make money out of those records. So if I have one person's information or let's say 500 people's information, 
then I can make money out of it. But when I have 5 million records, then it's very difficult for me to monetize that because I don't have the resources. Because you have to also note that hackers have to invest a lot of time and energy in order to create those fake identities and pursue them and file insurance claims and so forth. So so I can understand if somebody pays $500 for one record, but you cannot scale it up and say that if one record is worth $500, then 1,000 records is, is worth uh, $500,000. And, you know, on the contrary, the credit card numbers are worth like one, uh, $1 a record, but that is scalable. So 1 million credit card numbers will worth $1 million. It's also important to note that if medical records were worth $500 a piece, then all the security experts in the United States will quit their jobs and will become hackers because Imagine that you can hack into a hospital that easily has over 1 million medical records. And if you could sell them for $500, then imagine the amount of money that you could have. And I would do that for that kind of money. I would become a hacker. But the point is that it's not true. Good. Well, there's there's another thing I learned uh, from my research on this, something you wrote. Another way that patient medical records are monetized legally uh, and listeners probably don't know this because I didn't know this. Uh, a medical record stripped of the personally identifying information that hackers want can be collected, mined, and analyzed by other companies. Um, can you talk about what that actually means uh, and, and how some of these companies are monetizing that? Well, just like uh, other types of data uh, that is being collected and monetized, uh, medical data is also being mon- collected and monetized by many different companies, including pharmaceutical companies. For example, when you uh, go to your primary care doctor and he prescribes you something and you fill your prescription at a a pharmacy, all of that data is being uh, collected and then, uh, you know, mined and sold to different pharmaceutical companies who would like to know the characteristics of the patients who take their drugs, you know, whether you're buying their brand or one of their competitors' brand, what what are uh, the characteristics of the people who are buying that? What are the characteristics of the doctors who are prescribing that? They, they really would like to know the, the prescription patterns of the doctors for the marketing purposes. So uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a new thing. It's been going on in the uh, medic- healthcare industry for as long as I can remember. But is there any way now for individual patients to uh, to get in on the game to monetize their own personal records? So uh, it's a part of a heated, ongoing discussion about patients' right uh, to have access to their medical data and to have the capability to decide about who else. Uh, can have access to medical data. At the moment, the legal justification for the practice of data mining without patient consent is that, well, we are removing your personal information, so you don't have to worry about your privacy. But the point is, if I as a patient was given the choice to decide who can have access to my medical information, I then could also allow them to have access to my 
personal information. So if there is a pharmaceutical company out there who's developing a life-saving uh, new drug for, let's say, Alzheimer's uh, and has access to not only my medical information, but also can connect that type of medical information with my personal identity and realizes that I'm a very uh, good candidate to undergo their trials, which may end up saving my life, then I would also benefit from their data mining practices. So basically, I would volunteer to share my identified medical information with these uh pharmaceutical companies. So the very first benefit that I can get from that is the medical benefit. And the other part is that, you know, when asked if they are willing to share their information, something like 95% of patients say, yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, willing to share it for free. If they are given the chance that, hey, do you want to share it to get a few cents out of it, then I think it's fairer and patients should have that thing. They may undergo it. I mean, they, they may forego it and they say, you know, we, we don't want those uh, financial benefits, but I think they should have the chance. Let's kind of tie this all back together from the patient's perspective, medical records, uh, data breaches and privacy. There's been um, a lot of talk over the years about uh, making patient medical records more electronic and more portable so that if I switch hospitals, I switch primary care physicians, my medical record just just comes with me. But obviously that um, opens the system up to perhaps more risk. There's more technology involved. Can you talk about progress toward medical records being all electronic, but also address concerns about privacy and, and, and data protection? So um, medical records are now Almost all of them are electronic. However, they are in electronic silos. So that part of digitization is now completely achieved. However, the part that talks about information exchange or to use the jargon interoperability has not uh, been achieved. So if you go to a hospital, you may not be able to have your doctors access your primary care's notes. Uh, then you asked about patient privacy. I think uh, industry can easily address the patient privacy concerns. As, as long as we bring patients into the picture and give them control over who can access their records, then, you know, it's patient's choice. Just like Facebook gives you... A, control over who can access your Facebook account and, you know, see your pictures and updates and all of those things, I think now we have the technological capability to allow patients have full control of their medical records and make informed decision about uh, providing access to people and other physicians who they want to have access to records. So I am not really concerned about patient privacy there because information technology, if correctly and appropriately applied, only helps with privacy. We have seen that in other industries, we really do not have that much concerns about our financial privacy, although everything in banking industry is now digital. What it helps us to do is to 
have more control over what is happening and, you know, also as customers of those banks benefit a lot from this digitization. I gave you an example at the beginning. I can now uh, get notified instantly about any transaction. So, so potentially I can stop people from using my stolen credit card. Uh, that is a benefit that information technology has created in the banking industry, which directly basically helps me manage my privacy better because I can notice if there was uh, unauthorized uh, transactions on my credit card. However, if if there is no electronic medical records uh, and somebody goes and looks at my paper records, how can I know that? I, I can't. So I, I gave this example to, to illustrate that Going digital does not necessarily mean that everybody is going to have access to your records now and your privacy is compromised forever. It basically means that your records are now kept more secure and you can have more control over your records. The big condition here is if it's done appropriately and correctly. Well, we'll leave it there. That's a really uh, positive note to end on. Thank you for joining me today, Neam. Thank you very much. You can visit our website to learn more about Neem Niragi and his research. And now a new edition of our Metro Lens segment with Natalie Holmes. I'm Natalie Holmes. I'm a research analyst in Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. We're several years into the official recovery from the Great Recession, and the needle on poverty hasn't moved much, at least not in the right direction. In 2014, 59 of the nation's 100 largest metro areas continued to see poverty rates stuck at higher levels than before the recession began. None saw poverty decrease. And it's not just overall poverty that's gotten worse in the wake of the recession. Concentrated poverty, which describes the degree to which poor people live in poor places, has also gotten worse. For decades now, we've seen evidence that places, and neighborhoods specifically, matter. Being poor in a poor neighborhood brings added challenges, over and above those that accompany an individual's or family's lack of income. Health outcomes tend to be worse in poor neighborhoods. Crime rates tend to be higher, as do high school dropout rates. And the negative effects of living in these kinds of conditions can be long-lasting. Recent research finds that growing up in a high-poverty place can hurt a child's future economic prospects. In a recent report, Elizabeth Niebone and I took a look at regional trends in concentrated poverty since 2000, paying close attention to the post-recession period. In keeping with existing research, we define concentrated poverty as the poor population living in census tracts where at least two in five people are poor. Using that measure, we found that two-thirds of the country's largest metro areas, 67 in all, saw poverty grow more concentrated following the Great Recession. Take metropolitan Cleveland, for example. Even in a place that's long struggled with concentrated disadvantage, its concentrated poverty rate grew from 23% to 28% following the recession. This happened as the number of extremely poor neighborhoods in the region grew by nearly 40%. And it wasn't just in the city of Cleveland. In this region, like the nation, suburbs saw the number of extremely poor neighborhoods grow at a faster pace than in the city. So how's this happening? It depends on both the region and the neighborhood. There are a number of ways a neighborhood can tip into that extremely poor category. Better-off residents might move out of a declining neighborhood, as locals suggest is happening in the eastern part of the city of Cleveland. Or people with low incomes might move in, increasing the number of poor residents in a neighborhood. Or a neighborhood can cross that 40% threshold because enough people already in the neighborhood see their incomes fall below the poverty line. It can also be any combination of those factors. 
Given the severity of the Great Recession, it's not especially surprising that places where poverty became more concentrated also saw overall poverty grow. And yet, we know the economy doesn't account for all of this. Take San Antonio, for example. The region didn't experience a significant change in overall poverty following the recession, but the concentrated poverty rate in San Antonio grew by two percentage points. Something else must be going on. A key takeaway here is that the regional economy plays a critical role in shaping these trends, but it's not the only thing that matters. Where low-income people can afford to live also helps make a difference. Decisions around things like land use, zoning, where to build affordable housing, and how to distribute housing subsidies are things local stakeholders and regional leaders can control and that can shape the future of these trends independent of overall economic changes. I'm Natalie Holmes. Check out the full report and explore an interactive data map at brookings.edu. And you can listen to more Metro Lens on our SoundCloud channel. If you like the Brookings Cafeteria podcast, check out Intersections, a new podcast from Brookings. This week, we're talking to E.J. Dion Jr. and Constanza Stelzenmuller about the rise of right-wing populism in the U.S. and Europe. Check us out on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Chris Anichi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalah, and Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Deuce.